Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbis Alex Israel and Svi Hirschfield on Parshat Balak. For the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem, please visit elmod.pardes.org. And now, here is Rabbi Alex Israel and Rabbi Svi Hirschfield. Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is another exciting Pardes from Jerusalem podcast. My name is Tzvi Hirschfeld, and indeed, I'm sitting at Pardes in Jerusalem, and I am delighted to have with me the scholar, author, summer program director extraordinaire, Rav Alex Israel, who's also the executive producer of this podcast series, I'd like to point out, uh, and we are thrilled to be here to discuss Parshat Balak. Hello to all of our listeners. So, Rav Alex, we have before us one of the stranger parshiot in the Torah. Uh, Moshe only really appears at the end. In fact, the Jewish people don't really appear as active players uh, in this story. We, we, this is a story about one foreign king uh, trying to hire and indeed hiring a different foreign prophet, wizard, holy man. Yeah, to, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's quite a parsha. First of all, it happens in a foreign court. And second of all, like, it's almost like, I don't know, Dungeons and Dragons. We've got uh, talking donkeys and we've got blessings, sorry, curses turning into blessings and people who sort of like try and talk in a certain way and suddenly find their speech diverted or perverted or undermined. So when you look at this, obviously there is there is a necessity here. The Torah finds it essential to teach us something here that can only happen through this outside voice. There is something that we are meant to learn from these pronouncements of Bil'am that we could not learn from anywhere else. Right. It's it's very interesting that it seems like the whole purpose that we have this story here is because we need to hear these blessings. Like It's almost like God won't allow even somebody standing on a lonely hilltop overlooking the Jewish people you can't even utter any sort of curse, any sort of like negativity about the Jewish people. It has to come out as a blessing. But so I want to split that. I understand why God would not allow cursing, right? It sends the message that don't think you pagans have a power over me, that you can force me to do something wrong, and the Jewish people are my special people. But the issue of blessings, Moshe is going to bless the people at the end of Sefer Devarim, in the book of Deuteronomy. Why do we need the blessings? of Bila. So I think I would say that what we have here is a really interesting parsha which deals with the centrality of vision, sight, perspective. In fact, even the first word of the parsha, Vayar Balak ben Sipor, Balak, the king of Moab, sees and he's intimidated by this sight. And it would seem like the question of what one sees or what one does not see is really quite central to this story. When Balak, the Moabite king, takes Bilam, the the prophet or the seer, again we call him a seer, um, up, and he he keeps on trying to take him to a higher place. He takes him to one place and he says to him, um, "You're from here. You can see a small portion of the people, but you won't be able to see all of them." Misham. 
When that doesn't work, he takes him to a place where he can see all of them. And that's where we have the verse He sees the camp put out there. There's a sense of what can you see and what can't you see? And maybe the impression is that the more you see, the more you'll curse. And in fact, in this case, the funny thing is that the more he sees, the more he blesses. Well, the issue of his sight, right, the whole episode with the donkey and that the donkey can see the angel of God and this great seer, as you said, uh, can't see this incredible vision. The donkey is on a higher prophetic level than uh, this uh, supposedly great prophet. There's almost this, this ironic attempt to almost poke fun at the actual limitations of this man's sight or perspective. At the same time, we value his blessings from that perspective. Right. And in, in fact, if I could just add one final thing to this vision thing, um, it says, I'm reading from Pat, Chapter 24, verse 15, he says, And this idea of um, there's a question is, does he have one eye shut? Was he blind in one eye? Or some people say he had a particularly wider open eye. <laughs> and the question is, what happens when you only have one eye? You have a sort of a different perspective. And when we were having our conversation before we actually turn this on we were talking about perspectives from the inside and perspectives from the outside uh, you know thinking maybe even about our about our children i've had so many times when i'm exasperated with my kids for one reason or another i feel like they're not helping at home i feel like they're impolite of course not my children somebody his else's. children are perfect sadiqim by the way I and know that, that. And that's exactly the point. Suddenly I meet somebody and they tell me how phenomenal my child is. They tell me that they're responsible and they're articulate and that they're able to uh, really assist. And I'm like thinking, wow, you know, clearly they're seeing something that I didn't see. I wonder whether um, we have, there's almost a need to hear the perspective from the outside. The outside perspective of somebody who stands on a hilltop and looks at the Jewish people and says, Matovu alecha Yaakov, Mishkanotecha Yisrael. Look how beautiful the tent, look at, look at, look at your country. Look at your nation. It's phenomenal. The, the, the food in Israel is, is incredible. The high tech in Tel Aviv is astounding. This is such a gorgeous country. And, um, we don't always see it from the inside, from the inside. If I've been reading Bamidba right, you hear a lot of moaning and groaning, complaining. The food's not good. It's when it was the desert's are we, hot. Are we there yet? Well, but I, based on what you're saying, Moshe himself, when he looks at the people, does not see what uh, Bilam sees. Moshe sees the problems, right? As it, as it, as happened uh, last week. They're crying for water, and he sees them as rebels. Right, right. That's what Moshe sees. So, what do you make of that? Why does Moshe? Why is not Moshe? Why is Moshe sort of here? We're actually saying that Bilam sees more than Moses. And well, he sees, as you said, from a different perspective. Moshe is entrusted to trying to achieve the mission and solve the problems. So he obsessively talks. Sefer Dvarim. He reminds them of all their failures. It's very harsh. Yes, he says God loves them, and yes, they have a special purpose, and so on and so on. But he reminds them over and over again, you guys fail all the time. You're going to fail in the future. He's constantly warning because he's responsible for 
all the problems. And when you're responsible for the problems, you become accustomed to seeing all the problems. And out comes Bilam from this high perspective, and he sees Matovu Allah Yisrael. He actually sees the Jewish people as being something good and special. It, it's really, I, I find it amazing because I think there always is this double perspective, right? We have, uh, you know, how do we have the question of how do we look at Israel, modern Israel? How do we look at our communities and whether you see the good and whether you see the bad? And that verse, Matovu Ohalecha Yaakov, of course, it's sometimes been taken to be about the synagogue, Mishkanotecha, like the Mishkan, and not only the tents of learning, the tents of, of Torah, and the Mishkan, the places of Tefillah. But when you open Rashi, Rashi makes a lovely comment. Uh, where he says that what was special about the tents of Israel was that their their entrances were were oriented in such a way that they were very modest. You could never see into somebody else's house, and everybody gave each other privacy, right? Which I assume in a in a sort of makeshift camp was quite important. And he sees this as a great sign of the sexual modesty um, and propriety of the Jewish people and mutual respect. And mutual respect. What's what's so ironic is that. When you get to the end of Parshat Balak, there's a terrible debacle where the people engage in a sort of orgy, a sexual orgy and an idolatrous orgy with the uh, the daughters of Moab. And we have that. This leads into the story of Pinchas, the very violent story of Pinchas. And I just find that so interesting from the outside. One could almost say that in any society, there is a potential for good. And therefore, there are aspects of the Jewish people whereby they have innate modesty and a tremendous sense of uh, not looking where they shouldn't look. And then at the same time, something can flip. And sometimes even the best dynamics can sort of go awry. They can go haywire and they can go berserk in some way. But that's an interesting example, right? The Torah, at least at the end there, doesn't give us numbers of how many people actually participated in this sin. It deliberately gives you the impression that everybody did, mm -hmm. right? It says the uh, uh, it says the people of Israel, right? Be tzamed Yisrael, not some of Yisrael, but Yisrael, right? And it's clear it's not all of them. And then we hear about one couple, <laughs> right? So that to me is a very good example. You could easily, if you look at the big picture, and ninety eight percent are behaving the way they were supposed to behave, and 2% are not, you would say, that's a very impressive people. That's an incredible number. But if you're in charge of the sanctity of the camp and the fulfillment of the covenant as Moshe is and the leadership is, the 2% is horrifying to you. It is a sign of complete breakdown and failure and has to be dealt with immediately. Maybe that's an example of how we look at ourselves from within and how we might be judged from within. Right, and sometimes, you know, Duff, the, the, particularly the, the, the bad, the rotten apple, right, uh, makes the headlines, right? It's when you hear about some story and we assume that all Sahal soldiers act in this way or whatever it might be. Well, that's the outside perspective in Israel that works against us, right? We often feel that the rest of the world doesn't hear enough about our positive stories. Right. And about the 99%. And only wants to focus in on the destructive behavior of the few. Maybe we have to get some more bilams out there uh, to tell our story uh, so that's, in a different way. So that's really interesting because I, 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 I wanted to bring um, a, a really fascinating text from... Um, person who was one of my mentors, uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Rabbi Lord, uh, and um, Rabbi Sachs 
surprised me with this particular passage. It's in his book, Future Tense, which he brought out for the 60th anniversary of the State of Israel. And uh, when he was talking about, um, he spoke about a, a verse in this, in this parsha where they say, The Jewish people are a people who dwell alone and will not be considered amongst the nations. Rabbi Sachs tells the story that he was at a sort of diplomatic get-together. He was there with some representatives of the EU and people. the, the, the Jewish people were talking <laughs> amongst themselves about how certain international organizations are always uh, anti-Israel or, or more often than not. And uh, somebody that somebody who was in the diplomatic corps quoted this verse. They are a people who dwell, the, dwell alone. And as if to say that the world will always be against us. And Rabbi Sachs said that he found himself sort of with a sense of real outrage against this reading. And he said, this is the, the story of Balak, the, the, Bilam, the one who wanted to curse the Jews. This is not a this is not a blessing. This is a curse. It's a curse when you have a situation in which we feel that we are alone because it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If everybody's against us, then we believe that we can do whatever we want because they're always against us. And there's a very famous statement always said by Ben-Gurion, uh, that Ben-Gurion said, it doesn't matter what the world say, it matters what the Jews do. And he was very much saying it sort of in your face. So, yeah. I was just going to say that I guess if the word badad means alone, then that's one, that's sort of one meaning. But, you know, the many of the classical mafrashim want to emphasize that it's not a curse. It's actually a description. It's to our merit that we are separate, not alone, but separate, that we maintain a unique identity, right? In Egypt, we kept our names and we kept our language and we kept our dress, that our ability to survive especially as a minority in exile, has been built on our ability to see ourselves as separate. And other commentaries talk about how we didn't adopt the idolatrous practices of those around us, that being who we want to be was somehow dependent on being an Am Levadat, a, a separate nation. And I'm wondering, what do you make of that tension? As someone who, if I dropped you anywhere in the world, you are easily recognizable as a member of the uh, Jewish people because of the keep on your head and the tzitzit that you are wearing. And if they didn't notice that, they'll see it right away when it's Shabbat or where you're buying your food and so on and so on. So how do you understand this tension between not being alone, but indeed remaining separate? Yeah, I think it's it, it's a constant tension. I can I can certainly say that for me personally, um, because I, I feel like it almost gives me a strong core. The fact that I know that I will always be particular about kosher food and even, you know, not sharing a bottle of, of, of non-kosher wine. Um, in fact, <laughs> at the end of our Parsha, in that story about when Israel start mixing and start like, doing idolatry together with the Midianites, there's a beautiful Midrash there in the Midrash Rabbah where they say, how is it that they that the Jews came to start engaging in idolatry alongside the daughters of Moab and the daughters of Midian. And they indeed talk about how the Midianite girls would sit there with a bottle of wine. And there's this line in the Midrash, and Gentile wine had not yet been forbidden. <laughs> right. They, this, they were going to invite you, hey, I got kosher food here for you. Exactly. And they started saying, hey, let's party, let's dance. And one thing led to another. Um, I find that the fact that we 
that, that in, in very, very basic things, in terms of my conduct, in terms of the fact that I want to make it to Minion several times a day, and therefore when I choose a hotel to stay in, when I'm traveling, I'll frequently make it in, in, a, in a Jewish area or a place where I have access to a synagogue, where that I, I have reminders every moment of the day that I am Jewish, and therefore I can be a citizen of the world, and yet at the same time, I have this very, very strong core, which is always giving me that sense of, you know, my robust Judaism, which is constantly on the radar screen. I can't forget it. I feel like Rabbi Sachs is reacting to those who define the Jewish mission too narrowly, right? In other words, if my only job in this world is to get to the next world, through chapter one of uh, the path of the, of the righteous Misilat Yisharim, then the more separate, the better. Remove temptations be in a bubble, uh, a bubble of fear of sin and practicing mitzvot. Be in that bubble as much as you can because exposure. There's always that Midianite uh, woman with a bottle of wine. And, and, and I can see the whole world as basically one after another of Midianite women with bottles of wine trying to tempt me to give up who I am. But I think Rabbi Sachs would probably argue, what about Orla Goyim? What about being a light unto the nations? What about the role of the Jewish people as not being isolated from the world, but having something to teach? The rest All right. So let me, let me just add two, two lovely uh, things about Rabbi Sachs. One is that I remember once we had a, a, um, a question and answer session with Rabbi Sachs, and somebody said to him, Rabbi Sachs, you are a leader of modern orthodoxy. What do you say about this? And he said, I don't see myself as a leader of modern orthodoxy. And we looked at him and said, who is not more mo your orthodox? And you span all and, of Western... And everybody knows you. Everybody knows you, and you know every whole gamut of philosophy and every other discipline. So who could be... Who, who wouldn't be modern orthodox? If You're our you? guy, right. And he said, he said like this, he said, you know, he said, the Jews are, my, are a minority of the world. Orthodoxy is a minority of Judaism. Modern orthodoxy is a minority of orthodoxy. So why would I want to describe myself as a minority of a minority of a minority? He said, last week, I was in a conversation in front of 20,000 people with the Dalai Lama. If I was a leader of modern orthodoxy, would I have been invited? He said, how is Abraham introduced to the B'nai Chait. They said, Nasi Elohim atav tochenu, you are a prince of God. And he said, I don't aspire to be a modern Orthodox leader. I aspire to bring the word of God to the world. And that's what I said as my personal mission. This was after he had finished with being chief rabbi. And um, he really wanted to bring God to the national stage. So he, he sort of wanted to, to bring Judaism to help solve world problems. But at the same time, I'll give you another lovely metaphor, which only Rabbi Sachs could come out in a pamphlet that he wrote for Jewish students. He was asked the question, how do I be part of the campus and still keep my Jewish core? So he, he gave the following lovely analogy. He said, you know, if people emigrate to the United States, generally they take on American customs, American accents, and they start living like Americans. Imagine somebody, he says, comes from Norway and they come to, to America, they raise their kids there. Their kids are going to be completely American. He says, but there's one place in Washington, D.C., which is never going to become American. It's always going to fly the Norwegian flag. It's going to have Norwegian pictures on the walls. And he says, and you know what that is? That's the Norwegian embassy. <laughs> he said, the Norwegian embassy, they're still going to talk Norwegian. And they're still going to have pictures of Norway. And they're going to, everything's going to, 
He said, and that's the Jewish home. The Jewish home has to be our Jewish embassy. If our home is the embassy, then we can go out anywhere to spread the word of God. You know, that's beautiful and also so optimistic. Uh, you know, Avram, it's, it's interesting using the example of Avram, because Avram is also described as the Ivri. We know from the, the, the commentaries that Ivri, the Hebrew, also comes from Over, where the famous Midrash says, Avram's on one side of the world and the rest of the world's on the other side. I'm sorry, Avram's on one side of the, uh, and the rest of the world's on the other side. Emphasizing that for Avram to be Avram, he had to be different. On the other hand, he's a Nasi Elohim. He's a prince of God, and therefore he's, he's there to, spread the word. So I think we're always in this tension. Maybe that's what uh, Moab was was so worried about. Maybe it wasn't the idea that Jewish people would conquer them militarily, but maybe they were worried about uh, a cultural conquering, that mm. our message of monotheism or whatever, and, and, the, and the mitzvot of the children of Noah and morality, maybe they were afraid that we would be overly successful and undo uh, the culture that they had built. It's certainly interesting how frequently there are nations who are larger and more powerful than the Jewish people, but there is something about Jews and the Jewish people that much larger nations feel threatened by. <laughs> it's obviously something very deep because anti-Semitism has been, you know, replicated in so many different cultures. Even in countries time. that have no Jews anymore. That's true. So I think So I think we've spoken easy. about it's really interesting how our conversation is woven round. Yeah. Inside and outside insular and to the degree to which we are exposed. That's a beautiful point, right? We have to have, based on what we just said, both an insider's perspective and an outsider's perspective in terms of how where we focus our energy and how we live our lives and try to find some balance between being uh, on one side versus the world, on the other hand, engage with the world all at the same time. Fabulous. Fabulous. Well, Rabbi Israel, thank you so much. Thank I've enjoyed very myself much. very much. This was almost as good as what we spoke about at our ride-in to work this morning, but it was uh, still very good. And I hope all of you enjoyed it as well. And we look forward to engaging you again with the podcast on Parshat Pinchas. Thank you very much, Rutzvi. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you've just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem.